I'm Chris Chinchilla. Welcome to my podcast. A weekly squeak through everything technology-related, gaming, history, language, and generally a weekly geeky squeak. Welcome, everybody. How is everybody doing? I have quite a a packed episode this week uh, in amongst a series of weeks off, so a bit to catch up with and a bit to keep you going over the coming week. I am also on my backup microphone again, so apologies if things are a little thinner than normal. Let's begin. Firstly, somewhat revisiting a story from um, like two weeks ago or two episodes ago on a Wired from Will Knight. AI can wrote code like humans, bugs and all. I covered something along this theme a few weeks back about this um, co-pilot. Well, co-pilot is the GitHub project, but then there's a whole bunch of other projects all sort of looking to use um, OpenAI, GPT-3, etc., etc., to write code. And varying experiences of finding that, well, it writes code, but not always the best code. And actually, it kind of occasionally, I suppose because it's based on the training set used, it writes code making the same mistakes that a human makes. So (laughs) is that good? Is that bad? It's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? And then it's actually interesting because the researcher, which was Alex Naka in this case, found that it would sometimes make different sorts of errors. Humans tend to make one sort of error and the AI made different sorts of errors, actually. Uh, And one of the most crucial errors it made, which was actually quite important, and this researcher was from a biotech company, was security flaws, which are... I would actually argue that probably humans... um, make these mistakes a lot as well, which is potentially why the AI also is making those mistakes because it's the sorts of things that you you neglect, you forget about, you put aside. Um, And it made these errors about 40% of the time, which is actually relatively high in some respects. And the argument or the discussion behind this is always, well, it depends how it is trained. And an AI trained on bad habits picks up bad habits And developers, coders, we all know, um, don't always do the best things they should, take the best practices. So if you're training an AI on data that is from humans, then it's going to have mistakes. I actually kind of almost almost like this in some respects, this aspect that um, training the AI on material that is produced by humans makes the AI more human, but that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, interesting. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting uh, thought process to, to go through. How do you train an AI to make it less human in a good way if the only training sets you have are from humans? It gets a little bit, uh, what's the word, what's the um, inception <laughs> at this point? <laughs> yeah, food for thought. I, I wonder how you can train an AI on a better data set and... Better in the best possible way, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, from GitHub to GitLab. This was widely reported in the news over the past few weeks that GitLab uh, files to go public. 
with a revenue of over 200 million. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's this strange trend at the moment where tech companies are so highly valued and there's almost so many unicorn valuations now that um, it feels sort of slightly low in some respects, but it's valued at 6 billion. So I don't know, that is a lot, but I expected it to be higher, but I don't know why. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's also interesting when I put this sort of discussion out on my social media, I got a lot of responses to people saying that they didn't really know who paid for GitLab. Uh, I actually would possibly dispute that. I feel like probably more people pay for it than GitHub, which is possibly why it has less um, less discoverability, less, I can't think of the right words, like less, people, people think of it less because it tends to be one of these services that's installed privately uh, and you don't come across it so much just in the process of looking at open source projects or something like that. You tend to find that on GitHub, but probably internally a lot of people use, are using GitLab. Although, again, I am yet to encounter those myself either. So there's a lot of people using it somewhere, but I'm not entirely sure where. I'd love to hear from you. I actually have nothing against GitLab whatsoever. I like it. I like a lot of the people that work there too. But yeah, I very rarely meet people who are actually using it. So I'd like to know, are you using it? Um, is this valuation inflated? Is it accurate? What are your opinions on that? Um, and uh, what will happen in the future? Will Will the valuation go ahead? Will it uh, be a problem for the company? What will happen if uh, if the reality doesn't quite match the predictions, etc., etc.? Or am I just living in ignorance about how many people actually use GitLab? Let me know. You can find my contact details at chrisgiller.com. Next, an article from Niels Lean here uh, from just under a month ago now. Chrome is the new Safari and so are Edge and Firefox. Now, I do use Safari recently uh, for probably about the past year on my Mac, mostly because it was just the most performant and most native. I, I kind of grew to like it. And now when I have to go back to Chromium, um, and I do tend to use Brave when I'm using Chromium browsers, it doesn't feel quite so nice to me. But this is an article specifically aimed at Safari on iOS. And I do use an iPad, um, but I don't do tremendous amount of browsing on it. But if you did not know, it, actually it doesn't matter what browser you use on iOS, uh, the web renderer is still Safari. And this is kind of strange. I mean, in some respects, I also wonder, I saw the other day actually the App Store um, promoting Microsoft Edge and this aspect of, well, the browser manufacturers get Mindshare uh, and they get someone in their ecosystem, but it's kind of where the benefits stop. A user is not really getting much benefit because it's still Safari. You might as well use Safari, really. You're not really getting any of the other features. And this is, of course, a problem. Apple claims that it gives security, better user experience, etc., etc., etc. This is often a claim that Apple makes. Some of it is partially true. A lot of it isn't. I mean, Android functions, I think, in a very different way. I have this sort of niggling feeling at the back of my head that actually Android works in a similar way and everything's Chromium web views. But I'm not 100% sure about that, so don't quote me on that. But definitely with iOS, that is not the case. And it's causing problems. Um, iOS is a significant market share. Most of Safari's market share comes from it 
basically being the browser on iOS. Uh, and it also holds um, a lot of sort of um, progressive web app development back on iOS. I don't actually consider that necessarily a bad thing. I don't really like having everything as a web app. And forces people kind of down the uh, App Store path, which is, which is what Apple wants you to do. So <laughs> this is partially why they do it. And it's that discussion again that comes up frequently with Apple and especially iOS of what they claim is for usability and security and et cetera, et cetera. It, is it, does it actually create a benefit? Does it actually end up impinging on people's user experience? Hard to say. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting article to get into a bit of the, the more technical details behind the discussion. Um, and some of the knock-on effects of it. And if you didn't realize this and are interested in finding out more, then have a read. And um, yeah, what you could do about it. Apple is sort of starting to loosen up on some of these things. So it may change. I don't think so, to be honest with you, but it may change. Uh, and we will see. Now a little section on one of my favorite kind of esoteric topics. And that is... Undersea cables, these marvelous cables that basically through probably less than about 20 now, around a dozen, connect most of our internet together. And if one of them goes down, which sometimes happens, especially to more remote locations, then yeah, there's not really any internet. And this can happen because of sabotage, but it can also happen just because of they're at the bottom of the ocean and things just happen from ships and other creatures. And two articles here that uh, kind of good and bad. One was an article from Liam Tung on ZDNet that uh, Google's Grace Hopper cable just landed in the UK. Um, this is interesting because now a lot of the very, very big internet companies are starting to actually create their own cables because they are sick of the performance from the quote-unquote public cables and want to increase capacity to certain territories. So they're actually starting to add their own. Um, this takes us into all sorts of interesting territory, of course, around control and, and, and things like that. But at the moment, we're not really having that conversation. We're mostly just thanking them for it. There's a wonderful picture here with some guys on a beach with a, <laughs> with a, with a cherry picker, as they're called, a, a crane. Like uh, I don't really know what they're doing at this particular point. Um, yeah, once it kind of hits the coast, I don't know what it does. Uh, but yeah, this is the the new cable that has completed the UK leg that is going to connect the US, UK, and Spain. Um, it I don't know how how long is it in general? It doesn't actually say, but it could be pretty big. And uh, they've added quite a few others recently. Curie; these are all named after scientists between Chile and Los Angeles. Uh, Equiano between Portugal and South Africa, Dunant between US and France. So, uh, and actually another one into Asia as well, Apricot. So, there's a lot of them. Um, and this is going to become increasingly interesting. This is a bit of a counterpoint to China doing its own thing, as many, many US policies are right now. Um, but, you know, having the internet kind of basically divvied up between. Uh, overbearing nation states and overbearing corporations could make things interesting in the future, which leads very nicely to my next article, which um, is on the next web, TNW. Um, doesn't actually say who the author is. The author is The Conversation, which I don't think is an author. 
kind of actually digging a bit more into the politics behind undersea cables and what is going on. Um, so there's actually, oh, 400 submarine cables crisscrossing the world's seabeds. Okay, more than I thought. Uh, combined length of 1.3 million kilometers. These interest me because my grandfather actually laid some of the early versions of these, the copper wires. They're obviously now pretty much, I would say, all optic fibers. Um, but talking about how politics is playing out, especially in some of the more remote locations like Pacific Islands, smaller continents, things like that, certain parts of um, the Southeast Asia region, Asia Pacific. Um, Australia, for example, is also trying to fund some alternatives to the Chinese cables coming in. There's also a great book from Neil Stevenson. Now, what's it called? Ooh, I can't remember. One of Neil Stevenson's books is bizarrely about kind of the politics behind all this as well. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I, I cannot remember the name of the book. But um, yeah, suddenly there's this race to lay on loads of extra cables in certain parts of the world to basically kind of block out China uh, because a lot of security there as well. So, yeah, have a read of that for a bit more detail on the whole political side. Uh, so next time you're just browsing cat pictures, have a little bit of a think about all the infrastructure that's behind that. Next, um, two articles here. I'm going to kind of cover them in aggregate. One was from uh, wired.co.uk, from Megan Carnegie, and one is from Recode, from uh, Ronnie Moller and Emily Stewart, basically around this discussion of hiring at the moment. Kind of coming out of, I don't know how we want to say this, in the pandemic situation right now, and we suddenly find ourselves in a position where there's lots and lots of vacancies for roles and lots of qualified people and sort of the low end and the top end of jobs, but they're not matching. And some argue because the ways we hire are broken, um, often and especially more qualified people are filtered out of um, roles they're actually suitable for. I think this happens at all ends. Um, that uh, algorithms, which are increasingly finding their way into recruiting, are looking for particular skills. They don't find them, so they overlook people who are actually um, qualified for a role but don't make it to an interview um, and the repercussions of what that may be. Um, then I think there's, especially on the lower end, a whole bunch of people who got really screwed over in the pandemic by getting laid off at the last minute from kind of uh, hospitality jobs and things like that. And um, honestly, don't want to go back to some of them. They got screwed over the last time. Why would they want to go back to them? There's obviously also a migration issue at play in certain countries where some of those roles were filled by migrants who maybe went home or maybe can't even get into the country to fill those roles. This is especially, I think, the case in like the UK at the moment where a lot of uh, European workers would fill certain roles who are just not there anymore thanks to Brexit. I think there's also an element possibly more at the higher end of, of, of the job market where there's a lot of people who after having the year and a half that a lot of us have had just feel like some time off. Really. <laughs> um, and I've seen this myself. I've had quite a few people approach me about roles and you get the sneaking feeling that there's not many people they've spoken to because they can't find them and you turn them down and they... They say, who else is there? I don't know. Um, a lot of people in this situation. 
And what do you do about it? I mean, if people just don't want to work at the moment for whatever reason, there's only so much you can offer someone to make them change their mind uh, before it's just not even a consideration anymore or it's just sort of ridiculous in terms of the, the wage market. Um, and at the lower end, do you have to make more promises to people that they won't get screwed over so much and things like that? Um, yeah, it's quite fascinating to, to see this and I'm seeing it more and more. And I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence about why it may be um, and what we could do about it. And I'm not 100% sure. I almost get the feeling as we start to hit winter now in the Northern Hemisphere especially that people might just start trickling back to work and a lot of it will just get solved because people are like, well, I've had a good summer, back to work now. Uh, have that in the back of my mind based on no evidence whatsoever that uh, that may be what ends up happening. Your thoughts, please. Let me know from my contact details at christianschiller.com. A little bit now on uh, kind of trust and privacy and, and security. Uh, data security on the internet first from david gerwitz on zdnet again um express vpn had a bad few weeks mostly around an acquisition announcement from a company you've probably never heard of um called cape technologies um and also around their CIO. Cape Technologies is an interesting company that seems to make a lot of money in the past and probably still do to a certain extent in these sort of um, questionable advertising practices like the used to get in the old days of like uh, browser extensions that would sit there uh, at the top of your toolbar and things like that. Uh, ads in games, ads in apps, all these sorts of things that kind of sneak in and do all sorts of things you're not quite sure of. And they've been acquiring lots of VPN companies recently, which is slightly concerning. And they're acquiring ExpressVPN for $986 million, which is an enormous amount of money. And then uh, the CIO, Daniel Gericke, Gerica, I'm not sure how you pronounce it exactly, um, is actually on a got to find this, is amongst three men fined $1.6 million by the U.S. Department of Justice for hacking and spying on U.S. citizens on behalf of the government of the UAE. So then the article goes into a lot of detail about um, does, does this, any of this matter? Let's deal with the CIO first. The company kind of, and this is interesting, a lot of VPN companies are very public in some ways because they want you to um, trust them. But then they're very private in other ways. So actually, especially finding out information about individual staff members is quite difficult. And this, uh, Daniel in particular, has a quite kind of mysterious, shady type profile on the internet. And so do some of the other uh, um, high profile people at ExpressVPN. But the company kind of claims, well, you know, to protect people, we need to hire those who know to exploit things, which has an element of truth. But uh, there's also an argument to be made of kind of being so shady about it is also kind of suspicious. I don't know. It's an interesting one. The acquisition part, mm, it gets interesting here. They have hired quite a few companies, some of which I've heard of, uh, CyberGhost, Intego, um, ZenMate, 
who sound vaguely familiar as well. I've got this bad feeling I may even be using them myself or something. Um, and it's it's really VPN companies that want to be trusted tend to have audits, private audits, independent audits that kind of generally show that things are okay. Um, but how much of the different practices of, of companies owned by one parent company overlap and things like that. So this got me down a little bit of a research rabbit hole into looking into my own provider, which is NordVPN. They had one publicized uh, security incident a few years ago on one server in Sweden, which, I mean, is probably, uh, unless you're Swedish, a minor concern to you. Um, and the interesting aspect you find with them is, and I think this is actually not unusual for VPN companies, uh, a lot of the research I looked into dug a lot into their corporate structure. They tend to have offices and registered offices in several countries. This is sometimes for very different reasons. So often they locate an uh, official company in um, Panama or someone like this because those countries uh, don't have agreements to sign over data. So this means you actually, for a VPN, this is a good thing. But then they'll have uh, an engineering office somewhere else and another company somewhere else and then another parent company somewhere else and et cetera, et cetera. And this sounds dodgy, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is. <laughs> and again, they've been audited and many others have been as well. And, and most people seem to trust these companies. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because all these products are products that you trust. And generally the rule of thumb is if you pay for a VPN, it's much more trustworthy than a, than a free one. But you still are putting a lot of trust in them when, when you start to dig beneath the surface. They seem suspicious. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean they are, but that's how they could sometimes seem. Whew, well, that was a lot of discussion around that topic. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think the long and the short, the summary is that always, always, if there's something you're going to trust, do your research before you just blindly trust it. And very loosely related into this topic was another article from Wired UK uh, from Catherine Scheer. Um, How Hamburg became Europe's unlikely data protection trailblazer. This is kind of interesting. This is about Johannes Kaspar, who I think is just retiring, who is uh, data protection commissioner for Hamburg. I was actually there last week and is responsible for a surprisingly high amount of... Um, privacy and data protection activity in the European Union. <laughs> so maybe I won't go into detail right now, but uh, this one person has locked horns with a lot of American companies. And uh, if that is something that you're interested in, then yes, have a read, find out more about Johannes and his activities from the past few years and uh, what's going to happen next, I suppose. And finally... Whew, an article from Guy Deloni on BBC. Um, Belgrade in Serbia. It's one of my favourite cities. Uh, this has a loose tech connection because I used to go to one of my favourite conferences there. I knew this already, but this came up again uh, in September for some strange reason. 
there was is uh, no there was a tv show um, very popular in the 80s and 90s in the uk called only fools and horses um kind of niche but for some strange reason was very popular in yugoslavia in the former yugoslavia especially in serbia and there's one character in it he's not even one of the like main stars uh boise who is kind of the one successful like car salesman and the actor john uh, chalice and for some strange reason serbians are obsessed with him <laughs> <laughs> and the deputy mayor of um, Belgrade even has a road on named after him. Uh, and they did this because he died recently. And uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they have a road after him. And for some reason, they love this guy. And they say because it kind of summarizes the Serbian spirit of entrepreneurship and struggling against the man, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a weird uh, justification in my mind, but it's still kind of... It's wonderful that sometimes you just get these strange things. And it's not the only one I've ever seen or heard of, actually, where you get these strange kind of um, um, trends in certain countries and certain places. But it's kind of wonderful to read. And I'm sure you could find some Only Fools and Horses episodes on YouTube and be freaked out by how old-fashioned they are now same okay that was my uh, articles and links for the week what have i been up to a little bit actually um a few things have been on break due to travel and stuff like that but a few things also in progress uh i published an article currently on my website but it will be on other places soon um how i set up my little raspberry pi nextcloud server uh, and some details on that you can find that and uh, my last um hands-on video we was looking at Netlify preview and some of the collaborative tools they added recently that I wanted to look into um, I think that is it for now actually I'm going to be off next week so I might have a few things to catch up on then uh, and then back in a couple of weeks with a bit more but until then you can find out more about me at chrisjilla.com if you enjoy what I do you can find out how to support me and all the things I do at slash support on that website. And I always love to hear from you. So if you have anything to say, please reach out. Please leave a comment. Please rate, review, share, wherever you listen to your shows. And I'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>